please stand for the reading of the scripture. It's on the back of your worship guide, or maybe it's the front. Uh, John 18, 36 through 38. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king? And Jesus responded, you say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. You may be seated. is that you don't have to be scared. You don't have to be scared of uncertainty. You don't have to be scared of doubts. That doubt is as Christian as faith is. Let me say that again. Doubt is as Christian as faith is. So you don't have to be afraid. And the second thing I would say is you don't have to be embarrassed. You don't have to be embarrassed. I love the way George MacDonald described doubt you guys know I love C.S. Lewis, but, but George McDonald was actually the guy that C.S. Lewis always quoted. So now we're going two generations here. And uh, George McDonald described doubt this way. He said, doubts are the messengers of the living one to the honest. They are the first knock at our door of things that are not yet, but have to be understood. Love that. And what he was saying is that our doubts are usually an invitation. That if you are questioning something about Christianity or God or the church, if you feel uncertain about things that maybe at one time felt certain, that is an invitation or the first steps in a journey that God wants to lead you on to bring you to even more faith, more faith in, in, in the truth. So don't be afraid. Don't be uh, embarrassed, okay? I want you to know that as we, as we start this journey. One common thread that I find in the conversations that I have with people who are wrestling with doubt or the stories I read about Christians who are walking away from their faith is that 
uh, usually they have questions about God or the Bible or the church. And when they can't seem to find the answers that they need, then they assume that uncertainty disqualifies them. There is this sense that in order to be a Christian, you have to have zero doubt. For a lot of people, there is this assumption that, that faith means believing beyond a shadow of a doubt. But that's not what, what faith is. You know, Jesus said, you just need the faith of a mustard seed. I've never really seen a mustard seed, but I've seen pictures of a mustard seed. And it's almost hard to see in a picture. It's, it's very small. So obviously, sometimes the church can make, it, you know, make faith sound like you just keep accumulating this faith, like a snowball rolling down a mountain, and it's great, and it's great, and it's great, and it's great. But then Jesus showed up and said, I mean, you know, it's like if you got a mustard seed amount, you know? And so faith is not believing, uh, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt. Similar to our court system, faith really is just believing beyond reasonable doubt, really. And I love the way that Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, it's only the cynic who claims to speak the truth at all times and in all places to all men in the same way. I've shared that a couple of times this week with some different people as I've been working through this message. I just, I love this because Bonhoeffer is explaining something that commonly happens to those who become cynical or doubtful. And I am a recovering cynic. And this is, this is so accurate that what happens is many people walk away from their faith because they do not have the certainty that they need, okay? But then they feel certain about their doubts, even though they can't prove their doubts any more than they could prove their faith. Does that make sense? They, they, have, they don't have any more faith in their doubts, but they have more certainty in their doubts than they do their faith. For example, someone who is skeptical of Christianity maybe would say, you can't prove there's a God. But at the same time, they can't prove there's not a God. Okay? Or someone who's skeptical about Christianity might say, you know, Christians are so close-minded. You think your way is the only way. While at the same time, that skeptic believes that they are right in their beliefs that Christianity are closed-minded, Christians are closed-minded, and that Christianity is a wrong belief, and they want you to agree with them. Do you you see what what I'm saying there? Ironically, we don't doubt our doubts the way we doubt our faith. We move from one position to the other and then feel certain about something we can't prove when we walked away from something we couldn't prove because we felt uncertain. And this is the power of doubt, is that it makes you feel like uncertainty is the same as disbelief. But would it surprise you to know that many of the great Christian thinkers and saints throughout history have had great doubts about particular aspects of their faith. And I'll even admit to you that I have questions that I can't answer and that I wonder about about our faith. And at the risk of of making you think that I'm not perfect, and I know this is going to shatter some of you this morning to ruin this image of perfection, I thought I would just share some of the questions I have. Uh, I, I jotted down a few. Uh, One of the questions I have is I'm not entirely sure I believe the world was created in a literal seven days. I am certain that God, the creator, created this world 
but I'm not sure how long it took. I don't know if a day means a day. I'm not sure. I'm certain dinosaurs existed, but I have no idea when because it feels like the world has to be older than 6,000 years. And again, that whole timeline thing, I just, I've never been able to wrap my mind around the timeline of history and of civilization. If you've been around this church long at all, you know I have often struggled with the role of prayer, why it's impossible to predict what prayers God will answer and which ones won't, and I'm a control freak, and so that, I struggle with that. I'm pretty sure the Lord's going to return before something called the tribulation, but that's honestly just because that's what my grandfather told me. I don't know, you know? I mean, I know what these things are, but I don't know how they're going to play out, and you know, I, I, I believe what the majority of Christians have believed, but I, I couldn't necessarily back a lot of it up. I believe in hell, and I believe in some form or fashion that the Bible teaches and that Jesus teaches that, that people who do not have a faith in Jesus will spend eternity there, but I'm not sure what hell is exactly, and I'm not sure where it is exactly. I'm almost positive it's not under the ground, There are stories in the Bible that are probably not literal stories, but no one can totally agree on that. And really smart people have debated about that for a really long time. Stories like Job, which is the oldest uh, story in the Bible that technically, chronologically, comes before most of what happened in Genesis. And then Jonah, who spent three days in the belly of a well, which I have no problem believing that Jonah could do that because I believe that a man was resurrected from the dead after being crucified. So it's not that it may not be true because it seems too hard to fathom. It's just that really, really smart people aren't exactly sure if all of those stories in the Bible are literally true or if they are some other type of literary form that is inspired, completely inspired by God, but just not historically, literally true. These are some of the questions. I'm sure we could keep going, but you didn't come to hear all my questions today. But I wonder how that makes you feel to know that your pastor wonders about stuff like that. I hope that it makes you feel like you have permission to not be sure, to wonder and to question. And if I was being honest with you, I think a lot of times, um, we can kind of search for what's obscure and miss what's obvious, right? And and nothing about what I just told you makes me less of a Christian. I'm not on a slippery slope, you know? Uh, Growing up, I heard about this slippery slope all the time, and I'm sure it's very slippery. But what I just said to you, what I just said to you is not a slippery slope, It just means that there are parts of the Christian faith and the Christian tradition that I'm not completely convinced because I haven't been able to totally understand it yet. Now, the standard for whether or not something is true is not whether or not Jason can understand it. Part of the Christian faith is embracing mystery. But being a Christian also doesn't mean that you have to have blind faith, right? The only people who scare me are the ones who are absolutely certain God agrees with them on everything. Right? Tim Keller nailed it when he said that if God is real, don't assume he will perfectly align with your views. 
If he never challenges you on your assumptions, you may have a made-up God. We should expect God to challenge us on what we think is right somewhere in our lives, economically, socially, sexually, and personally. So I am much less concerned about people who have questions than I am people who have no questions. Like, are you reading this book? Because if you're reading this book, you're going to have some questions. So over the next four weeks, we're going to try and answer some of the, the big foundational questions about the Christian faith. And then in the last week, I'm going to answer some of the, the common, I guess, critiques of Christianity, I guess, like some of the big objections, uh, the low-hanging fruit, I guess. And so this week, we're going to answer what is truth. We'll talk about that in a moment. Next week, we're going to answer who is Jesus. And then the third week, we're going to answer what is the Bible. And then the last week, I'm going to hit those common critiques. So we're going to talk about science, slavery, sex, and suffering. So... People say, I struggle to be a Christian because of science, sex, slavery, or suffering, and we'll, we'll talk about that, okay? So this week, we're going to talk about what is, what is truth. Now, we have a joke in uh, the Isaac's house, and I'm not really sure when it started, but at some point, anytime Andrea or I are feeling extra stubborn, and one of us has just proved the other person wrong in some way, you know, whether it's like facts about a story or some theory of life, you know, that somebody brings up and the other person proves them wrong, then the person who has just proved, proved wrong will say, agree to disagree, agree to disagree. This is the joke that happens around our house. And the reason we laugh when we say that is because agree to disagree in our house is code that I surrender. I have nothing else to say, but I will not admit that I'm wrong and you're right. This is, this is code, agree to disagree. And there are many things in life that we can agree to disagree about. Relative or personal exp- opinions. Um, for example, I thought the last Spider-Man movie was terrible, but everyone in my house thinks it was amazing. And so we can just agree to disagree. Um, that's okay, right? When it comes to topics like appropriate tax brackets or the best strategy for public education or who should be the president, We can agree to disagree. But in in the postmodern secular society that we currently live in, we've really taken this idea too far, and we have started believing that everything is open to interpretation or that it's relative specifically, that everyone is free to believe what they want to believe, and anyone who tries to establish things as true or false is closed-minded or they're hateful or they're ignorant. And this is actually one of the reasons why there's a growing hostility towards Christianity. Not a hostility towards spirituality in general. Our our world and our society is becoming much more spiritual, inclined to spiritual things. But there is a, a growing hostility towards Christianity because Christianity, for thousands of years, has had an established belief system. But in the last 20 to 30 years, and those date ranges could probably be debated a little bit. Maybe you could go back to the last 50 years. There has been this growing movement to try and make Christianity more accessible by removing the standards of the Christian ethic. There's a, there's a growing movement on college campuses to interpret ideas as violence. That up until this point in history... 
violence was defined as a physical act against someone. But now there is this growing movement to define an idea as violent. And so a belief could be interpreted as as violent based on how your belief makes another person uh, feel. And, And we shouldn't be surprised by this. We don't have to be defensive about this. I don't bring that up because I'm feeling defensive or want pity or I'm not a martyr. No, none of us are martyrs. There are real martyr, martyrs in the world today. We're not them. Jesus was very clear that to follow him meant to be at odds with the belief system of the world. That Jesus never promised us in any way that we would be able to, to figure out how to construct a version of Christianity that would not put us at odds with the belief system of the society, and the culture. It got Jesus killed. And I want to be really clear um, that anyone who is not a believer, anyone who's not a Christian, maybe you're here today and you don't have faith in Jesus, you're not a Christian, you are free to agree to disagree with the tenets of the Christian faith. I am not saying that everyone in the world has to agree with what Christians believe, because that is not true, and the Bible actually talks about that too. That it would be ridiculous for us to try to apply the standards of Christianity to people who do not claim to believe in Christianity. We can't judicially make people act Christian or... Uh, try to make it a moral standard, that's not going to work. Matter of fact, when Christianity has been the strongest throughout history is when it has been a minority in a culture or a society of people who disagree with it. It always loses its power once it becomes the social construct of the way that the world works or the society or the culture works. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian or to the world at large, I'm not saying that non-Christians have to believe that Christianity is true, But for those of us who do believe in Jesus, whose faith is in Jesus, people of faith, Christians, there are certain aspects of the Christian faith that are true and false. And as you read through the New Testament, you find that there's not as much teaching on behavior as you might guess based on what we would assume that the disciples or Jesus would want to talk about. They'd want to talk about, you know, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. Maybe that's what you've thought they had to say, but that's not what you find. As you read through the New Testament, what you find is verse after verse begging the Christians to keep the faith, to stand firm in the truth, to not fall for false teaching. And the reason that they talked about this all the time is because universally the, the, the apostles and the disciples believe that the biggest threat to your faith is not bad behavior, it's bad beliefs. The bad behavior will always come eventually if your belief system is faulty. And they felt the most important thing they could do was to reaffirm the correct belief system uh, in, in your life. And I want to just show you one example of this. They're going to put it up on the screen for you. But this is Colossians chapter 2, verses uh, 6 through 8. I want to just read this to you. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes, he says, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, so he is talking to Christians, he's talking to people of faith, not talking to the world at large, he's talking to people of faith. He says, you must continue to follow him, talking about Jesus. And he says, let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him, talking about Jesus. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness as your roots grow down in the truth. Verse eight, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world 
rather than from Christ. And so this is just one example where Paul is clearly teaching here that you can accept Jesus Christ, but at some point stop following him because you embrace ideas that sound reasonable or practical or are generally more accepted, but they are not from Christ. That should, that should chill us a little bit. That should hit kind of deep right there. That you can accept Christ, but at some point stop following Christ, but not even know that you've stopped following Christ. Because you have started believing things that are more reasonable or practical or more generally accepted. Now, this is not a new problem or a new idea. This was being written, you know, in the first century. And the church, when it was established after Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, they were having to wrestle with all of this. There was no, you know, there was no, like, uh, rules. that They were establishing the church. And so they, they were wrestling with this as well. There were actually kind of six different branches of Christianity early on in the Christian movement. Everybody kind of took a piece of Jesus and then broke off and kind of their own little thing. And so they're wrestling with this. And there was a guy named Arrhenius who was, who was known as the kind of the last connection to the apostles, really to John, which held a lot of weight back then because there were, there were eyewitness accounts, people who were actually there with Jesus. And their word really meant something because they saw it for them, themselves. And so Irenaeus was, he was famous for his apologetics and his ability to defend the faith. He was the last known living connection to the apostles. And so in his defense of Christianity, he said this. He said, error indeed is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed, it should not at once be detected, but it is craftily decked out in attractive dress so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. Now that was, that was, a, that was, a, lot to, to, that was a lot of words right there. But here's what he's saying. He's saying that what makes a lie so tricky is that, is that often it feels like a better version of the truth that it's more enlightened, or it makes you in some way feel as if you have graduated. This has been a common trap throughout history when it comes to Christianity and spirituality, is that every so couple hundred years, someone comes up with this, this idea of Christianity that has these levels that you graduate to in spirituality. It feels like enlightenment. And so Arrhenius shows up and he says, to the inexperienced, or to someone who, as Paul would say, roots haven't grown down deep in the truth, they can so easily be led away by something that seems so attractive or effective or practical, and it feels more true than the truth. And so Irenaeus said that for a Christian, people of faith, not the world at large, but for people of faith, that there were three Christian pillars or standards or filters, we could say, to help us know the truth from a lie when it comes to Christianity. And here's what Irenaeus said. He said it was the scriptures, the tradition handed down from the apostles, and the teaching of the apostles' successors. So we could paraphrase it like this, that for Christians, the way we define whether or not something is true is, did Jesus teach it? Did Jesus model it? And does the church accept it? Did Jesus teach it? Did Jesus model it? And does the church accept it? And that, those three filters right there, is what we call orthodoxy. Okay? 
Orthodoxy is the beliefs of the church and practicing Christians passed down through the generations. And we talked about this before at the church, but I wanted to reiterate this again, that as Christians, we don't, we don't believe or determine truth a generation at a time. That we have a history and a legacy that the Christian faith is passed down a generation at a time. And we use Jesus' teaching and Jesus' life and the authority and the structure of the church in order to define what is true and what is not true. To which someone who's cynical or skeptical would say, well, wait a second. Like, if you go back through the history of, you know, the church, like, man, they got a lot of stuff wrong, which I would not disagree with you. There's so many things the church has gotten wrong and been on the wrong side of the issue in so many things. But when we have been wrong... It's because we got away from Jesus' life, Jesus' teaching, and, and the Bible. And we had to be brought, we had to brought back. This also does not mean that no one's allowed to question the church. Or that no one's allowed to question church leaders. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself during his ministry criticized the church because there was some glaring inconsistencies. But, and this is really an important clarification, Jesus showed up and criticized the church using the Bible and the scriptures as the standard to say the church has lost its way because this is what the Bible says. Not showing up and saying the church has lost its way because this is how the world feels like the church is in the wrong. Does that make sense to everybody? So I say all of that to say this, that I want to make sure you're hearing me clearly that anytime we talk about truth or we fight against this idea of progressivism or culture, it's not because we're afraid of critique. It's not because we're feeling defensive. It's not because we don't think that we should be questioned. It's not because we believe we're perfect or there isn't room for improvement. And I definitely am not saying that you should take everything that I say as gospel. Nothing would thrill me more than for you to email me Or come up to me next week and say, hey, I was reading the Bible to double check what you were saying so we could talk about it. In a a Christian community, there should be healthy and vigorous dialogue and study. But our standards always have to be the truth of God, not what makes us more likable or more accepted by the culture. Does that make sense to everybody? But that still brings up a really interesting question. Who the heck's Irenaeus? Why does he get to decide? You know? I mean, why, why, why does Jesus get to be the standard? Why, why is the Bible true? Like, you're using these filters, but the, these standards that have been, you know, set up, but why do those get to be the standards? Why can't I be the standard? You know, why can't I decide what is truth? Who says that that is true? Why do the church leaders get to decide? That's a valid question. It's not a question that should bother us. It's a question that I hope at some point every person in this room has asked yourself. What makes something true? Why do you believe the things that you believe are true? Why are they true? Why are the things that I say are true, true? Like, what makes something true? I love this question. I love this question. And maybe you're in the middle of trying to find the answer, or maybe you've never thought about it, but I hope after today you will. And listen, if after today you feel a little bit more uncertain than you were when you started because you'd never actually asked the question, that's not a bad thing. 
That's the beginning of a journey and an invitation from God. Maybe somebody at work has asked you or some relative has asked you and you didn't know how to answer. Hopefully after today you will. And here's what I've found. I've found that a lot of people, many people, ask this question, but then they stop. And since they don't know the answer, then they assume there isn't one. And they assume that they've discovered a question that has no answer. This is one of my uh, pet peeves or frustrations when I listen to podcasts uh, or read uh, articles or, you know, of people who are critiquing the church or God. They will ask this question in some way that it sounds like the question in itself is true. They'll say, well, I mean, how can we know? And then they just stop. And I don't want to discount anyone's experience. I don't want to discount anyone's journey. I'm not in any way trying to sound superior or make anyone sound inferior, but that's just lazy. It's lazy. Because there are answers to almost every question that you have. Now, you may not like them, but there are really, really, really smart people who for thousands of years have been wrestling with these questions. There are people who don't even use a Bible. They use the scrolls that have been found in the ground and they interpret them from the original languages and they, they are wrestling with these things, historians and theologians. Again, this is going to sound more sarcastic than I mean it, but you don't think you've come up with a question that no one's ever asked before. There are answers. But in order to find those answers, it requires some study and some patience and some humility. But the good news is that you have now begun to wonder about something that if you will let it, will lead you to a closer, more personal relationship with Jesus. So I said all of that to try to answer the question for you. Now, the first week I do a series that always runs a little bit longer because I got a lot I want to say, Right? But that was all just a setup to uh, teach you or, or explain to you what makes something true. Why do I believe or you believe what we believe and why is it true? And so I'm going to do it in two parts as quickly as I can. The first part's going to be a little bit technical. And then I'm going to try to be really practical. So give me just a few moments to be really technical, okay? If you've ever wondered this or asked this question, like what makes something true or why do I believe that something is true, what you are talking about is epistemology. You're going to impress somebody with a big sight word right there, vocab word, you know, the next time you want to talk about it. Epistemology. And epistemology is really just a fancy name for why you believe what you believe. That every person in this room, you come to conclusions in life and you believe you have theories of life and things you believe to be true about, about life. You believed that that chair would hold you when you sat down in it. You didn't really think about it. You just believed the chair would hold you. And how you came to believe that, there's a name for that. There's a method for that. Why you believe there's a God or why you believe everything that you believe. And there are three reasons inside of this idea or this explanation about why you believe what you believe. Three reasons why you believe what you believe. The first one is tradition. The second one is experience, and the third one is authority. So your tradition, your experience, and your authority. Now, tradition says that I believe something because it was modeled for me. 
my family was Catholic, and so this is what Catholics believe, and so I believe it. Or my family were immigrants, and uh, this is what they believe, and so this is what I believe. It was modeled for me, and I accepted that, and I picked it up. And tradition is a very strong force. It's a really beautiful thing. On its own, it's not enough to make um, something true, but every study, every study ever done will tell you that a strong family unit or a strong social circle or tradition in your life is better for human development. And so in no way are we looking down on tradition. It is a powerful, beautiful thing. And our society is kind of wanting to tear down anything traditional. And some of that's good because some of our tradition is biased and hateful. But that doesn't mean that it's all bad. Okay? And so if I were to ask you to make a list of all the things that you believed, many of the things on your list you would believe because of tradition. Like, I don't know, I just never didn't believe it because it was modeled for me that this is what I believe. This is true with religion, but this is true with sports teams you like or food that you eat or how you make certain dishes or whatever it is, okay? And so that's the first one is tradition. Let me give you the second one. The second one is experience. And experience says, I believe something because it happened to me. I believe something because it happened to me. I think one of the greatest examples of how experience defines what we believe is true or not in our life is racism. Depending on your experience with racism, you believe certain things to be true or not true, which is why it's so important to talk to different people about their experiences. But you could hook two people up to a lie detector test and you could ask them about the seriousness of racism, get two completely opposite answers, and the machine would say they're both telling the truth because they believe it. They believe based on their experiences, they believe it's true. And experience is a powerful force for good and for bad. Many of you have the faith that you have because you experience God in a powerful way. And that's a, that's a good thing. But it can also be dangerous because if we're not careful, we can believe that our experiences make something true, even if they're not true. And our society right now promotes this idea to the extreme that if you experienced it, it's true. So if an authority figure hurt you, authority's bad. If your dad left you, men are bad. If the church has wronged you in some way, the church is not necessary. Because this is your experience, and if your experience, if it was your experience, then it's true. But this is very important. I want everybody to listen to me. I know I'm giving you a ton of information today, but if you don't hear anything else I say, I want you to hear this, because this has the ability to change your life. You ready? If you experienced it, and you feel it, then that means it's honest. But that doesn't mean it's true. Hear me. If you experienced it, then it's honest. But that doesn't mean that it's true. Your experience was real. And the feelings that you feel from that experience are real. And they are honest. But that doesn't mean that your belief is true. It just means you're being honest. And that concept in itself has the ability to change the way that you see the world. But I ain't got time to get into that. So that's the second reason that you believe is your experience. I'm going to give you one more. The third reason that you believe is authority. Authority says, I believe something because I believe the person who told me. 
So tradition says, I believe something because it was modeled for me. Experience says, I believe something because I experienced it. And authority says, I believe something because I believe the person who told me. Now, this is where the skeptic would say, well, just because you say something is authoritative doesn't mean that it is. You believe who told you, and I'll believe who told me, and then let's just agree to disagree. And that would be okay if we weren't talking about the Christian faith. But we're talking about those of us who claim to believe in, in Jesus. And so the skeptic who would say that Christianity is faulty because people believe things just based on the word of people who said it would also have to admit that the things that they believe are true in their life, they believe on authority. So they would critique Christianity because they'd say, well, you just believe it. You, they could have made it up, but you believe it. But everything that that person believes, they believe based on authority too. And they can't prove it any more than you can. Now, C.S. Lewis brilliantly describes this in Mere Christianity. As a matter of fact, the first time I read Mere Christianity, this was the, first, this was the part of the book that made me fall in love with his writing. And this is a little bit lengthy, but I want to read it to you. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote about the power of authority, okay? So it's like two paragraphs, but just I want to read this to you because he says it better than I could, okay? Lewis said, don't be scared by the word authority, Believing things on authority only means believing them because you've been told by someone you think is trustworthy. 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority. I believe, this is Lewis talking, I believe there's such a place as New York, but I have not seen it myself. I could not prove by abstract reasoning that there must be such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. The ordinary man believes in the solar system, atoms, evolution, and the circulation of the blood on authority because the scientists say so. Every historical statement in the world is believed on authority because the, uh, none of us have seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Armada. None of us could prove them by pure logic as you proved a thing in mathematics. We believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them, in fact, on authority. A man who jibbed at authority and other things that some people do with religion would have to be content to know nothing all his life. Did you catch what he's saying? He's saying, unless you were there, you believe it on authority. Unless you experienced it, you believe it on authority. To which someone would say, well, that's ridiculous, Jason. Of course, World War II happened. We have pictures. You believe the photographers. You believe the pictures are real. You believe the publishers. Or you say, Jason, of course Africa is a real continent. Now, I've never been to Africa. I don't know if anybody here has been to Africa. But you would say, well, that's just, you're being silly. Like, of course Africa is real. We have maps. Well, you believe the map makers are telling the truth. You say, no, you know, you're being, so you're just being extreme. Because there are lots of people who have been to Africa. And you believe all of them are not lying. But you've never been there. And as you begin to think through all of the things that you believe to be true about your life, you will see that you believe them because you believe the person who's telling you it's true. Authority is given. Authority is given. You have to give something authority in your life. And so when it comes to Christian beliefs, we believe the people who were there 
and who wrote about it. We give the disciples and we give the Bible authority. Now, let me be very clear. You don't have to. You don't have to. But whatever you believe instead, you will believe because you give it authority. Does that make sense? So you might say, I don't believe in God because I prayed for my parent to be healed and God didn't do it. Well, that means that you're giving personal experience authority in your life. Your experience is what is authoritative about what you believe to be true. Or you may say, I don't believe God is real because it can't be proven. What you're saying is you are giving your opinion authority. You believe it to be true because you believe it. Believing something is true is a choice. It's a choice. Now, I got like three minutes to get really practical. Our scripture today is from John 18, where Jesus is on trial in front of Pilate, and he says something really interesting. And I noticed it before, but I didn't notice it like I noticed it until this week. Thankful for the living word of God. In verse 37, Jesus made this comment. George read it for us. He says, all who love the truth recognize what I say is true. Now, somebody who would want to debate with you would say that that logic don't add up right there. Because they would say, well, yeah, they just believe it's true because they want it to be true. To which Jesus would say, yeah, that's exactly what I said. Jesus said, all who love the truth recognize what I say is true. They're talking about who is Jesus. Pilate's saying, are you the king? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus is saying to him, I would tell you, but you kind of already have your mind made up about what you want to be true or not. Is in essence, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but. And so Jesus seems to be implying that there is a posture to the way that we question things. This is really important. I want you to hear this. That there is a, there is a posture to the way that we question things. And a posture to the way that we doubt. That we can seek answers from a place of, of hoping and desiring that the truth be true. That we could have a love for the truth. That, that we don't want to be critical for the sake of being critical. That we're coming from a place of desiring the truth to be true. And we want to know the truth and we love the truth. Even if the truth inconveniences us. Even if the truth puts us at odds with things that we don't want to be at odds with. We love the truth. We would hate to think that we would be living our life based on something that is not true. And so, oh, how we want to know the truth. Jesus says here that if that is your posture, that you'll know the truth when you hear it. You'll see it. You'll want to find it and you'll find it. But the opposite is also true, that if you don't want to know, you'll find a reason not to believe it's true. Now, of course, none of us would say we don't love the truth. We don't consciously believe lies. No one who's in a cult thinks they're in a cult. But this is where the supernatural part of faith comes in. That God will help you to recognize the truth. 
like a, like a horse being led to water, the Holy Spirit will lead you to truth. If you love the truth, if you want to know the truth, then the Holy Spirit will lead you to the truth. And you may not like the answers, but you'll know it's true. And you'll have to figure out what you want to do with that truth. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, just two chapters earlier. He said, the Holy Spirit will lead you to the truth. God said that, or Jesus said that when he leaves, he will send us the Holy Spirit. And there's so many good things about the Holy Spirit. But one of the best things about the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is that as you live your life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, as you're living your life, that God in spirit is with you to lead you to the truth to remind you of what is true. And if you love the truth, you'll know the truth when you hear it and when you see it. As Christians, we give God and the Bible and the church authority in our lives. We give it. We don't blindly follow it. We give it. We decide what it is that is authoritative and what we believe will define the truth. And for Christians, not the world at large, but for those of us whose faith is in Jesus, we have decided, the church historically has decided, that God, the Bible, and the church have authority. We give them the authority. If I decided today that I wanted to be Hindu... I would be accepting what the Hindu religion gives authority to. If I decided that I wanted to be Muslim, I would be accepting what the Muslim religion gives authority to. I don't get to walk in and say, I want to be this, but not how y'all do it. But I want to be that. I coach my kids' YMCA soccer teams since, for, I don't know, forever. And when I sign up to put my kid in soccer and to coach soccer, I am saying, I will do it how you tell me to do it. I don't get to say, hey, listen, I'm coaching and they're playing, but we're using our hands. <laughs> like, no offense, agree to disagree. We're using our hands, they're using their feet, but agree to disagree. <laughs> no, I have agreed that the YMCA has the authority to decide the rules. Now, I can go start my own sport. It's called handball. <laughs> and I can recruit other people to come join my handball league. And we can have a blast and we can talk about how stupid soccer is because they don't use their hands, but in handball we do. And it's better. And if they ever tried handball, they'd give up on soccer. And we could have our own thing. But if I want to play YMCA soccer, I got to play YMCA soccer. The way the YMCA says it needs to be played. And if I have a thing that I think is a better, that would make it better, and I want to go to the people who I've given authority to, to tell me what's true about YMCA soccer, I can go. And we can have dialogue and we can critique and I can point out why this doesn't make sense, but why this does make sense. And I can try to, together with the authority that I have given in my life, try to make it better. But at the end of the day, I'm not in charge. I've given someone authority because I didn't start my own sport. I said, I want to be in your sport. And for those of us who are Christians, we cannot come into Christianity and say, I want to be a Christian, but not like that. I'm using my hands. We can talk and we can dialogue and we can work together. But Christians 
give authority to Jesus, the apostles, the scriptures, and the church. And that is what defines what is true. And so what I want to do today is I want to end by reading Psalm 1. I love the language of the psalmist and he give, that he gives describing what our lives can be like when we delight in God's truth. Matter of fact, I'd love for us to read it together. They're going to put it up on the screen for you, just the first three verses. But I would love for us to read this together, starting with verse 1, all the joys. Psalm 1, 1 through 3. And just allow these words to, to speak to our heart, to get into our heart about what is possible for us if we will love God's truth. Let's read it together. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that you chose to to display yourself to the world, not in some abstract theory, but in flesh and blood in the form of a human being, you came to us to show us who you are. And so God, we don't have to wonder what love is. We don't have to wonder what truth is. We can look to Jesus. We can look to his life. We can look to his words. We can look to his church. And so God, I pray that Hope City Church would be a place that loves truth. Even where we are believing lies that are more comfortable for us, God, I pray that we would love truth. And I pray that every person who's listening to my voice right now would love the truth. I pray that our posture would be leaning towards the truth. We want the truth to be true. We want to see it. We want to know it. We want to recognize it. And God, you promised that the truth would set us free. But God, it probably won't feel like freedom at first. Because we are shackled and chained to lies that are convenient. So God, I pray that you would lead us to your truth and we would delight in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.